Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. What are offices for, anyway? After months of working from home and many more months to go before COVID lets go, the answer really isn't obvious anymore. A lot of occupiers are, of course, rethinking their real estate strategy, while investors are trying to understand the best way to pivot, preserve, find new value in offices over the next few years. I asked David Smith, he's the Vice President and Global Head of Occupier Research at Cushman Wakefield, to share some insights on occupiers' changing strategies. Thank you, David, for being a part of today's AFIRE podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be with you. You and your colleagues published a report called Workplace Ecosystems of the Future that helps answer some of the questions we all have about office. Can you share with us today what you think occupiers might be thinking now? Sure. And so we did focus groups with uh, 32 different types of uh, owners, occupiers, and uh, uh, placemakers. In addition to that, our consulting team has been collecting data through previous to the pandemic and then throughout the pandemic directly from employees. And so we have tens and thousands of responses there, millions of data points that give us a sense from both the occupier perspective as an employer, as well as the employees on what they're thinking. Um, and I think there's a, a couple of things. One, we're very much in a wait and see mode uh, as we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and so people have not returned to the office at full force, even if offices are open. But that doesn't mean that occupiers aren't really active right now in terms of planning, scenario planning, uh, strategizing about what the future might look like. Uh, and I think they're really examining what their options are, really trying to understand what their employees employees thinking, what they want, um, so that they can try some new things uh, coming out of it. And I think it will be an iterative process that we'll see occupiers try to figure out uh, the best way to both have their employees be productive, but also be them be really engaged with the organization and with the work they're doing uh, for the future. Every conversation I have with an AFIRE member around office is some version of, I don't exactly know. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out. But um, I saw a prediction in your report that global office vacancy, which was around 10.9 to 11 percent in 2019, is expected to be somewhere around 15.6 percent in 22. Uh, do you see that changing in any way or, or do you think that's a pretty solid number based on what you've seen? Yeah. So we do expect that vacancy is going to increase. Um, you know, we're coming out of a recession. Uh, so it's not just that this pandemic is different. Um, you also just have the slowdown in demand that comes with that. Uh, there is new product coming on. So some markets are going to be a little bit over, um, you know, developed here in the next year or two. Uh, but on the whole, uh, that new development is more sedate as a percentage of total inventory than we've seen in 
previous recessions, which is, is positive news for the market. Um, but yeah, we definitely expect that we'll see vacancy increase for a few years here, and then we'll start to see demand catch up um, as job growth uh, accelerates coming out of the recession. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, our pieces of optimism about this is that uh, you know, job growth will be strong in a couple of years. And in addition to that, that office work is disproportionately taking up uh, new jobs. So while we might be at 29% of jobs right now in the US that are office using, that'll be 32 or 33% in 10 or 15 years. Um, so the, the economy as a whole is moving towards uh, office work. Uh, which will, will create demand for new space. Even with the increase of office workers that we're expecting, a lot of people are asking questions about how much space will those office workers require, especially with a expanded work from home environment that we've experienced over the last year and are likely to experience for the next several months, if not a year as well. So how do you think that's impacting future demand? And, and how much of that do you think will happen once perhaps everyone has a vaccine and we feel comfortable going into the office again? The COVID-induced uh, kind of experiment uh, has accelerated a, a number of trends in our economy. And one of those is certainly uh, moving a lot of people into a work-from-home scenario. And I think that uh, Many occupiers were doing that before. We saw essentially work from home in the U.S. Uh, by certain BLS numbers grow by uh, essentially double between 2005 and 2019. So it's not that that wasn't growing, but I think that on average, a lot of organizations were a little reticent to move to broad scale uh, remote work or more agile work. And, and certainly the cutting edge companies were doing that. And on the fringes, there were more companies doing that. I think that the surprise for occupiers was how productive people could be and how well the technology uh, has been. And so the, the Zooms or the Teams or whatever tools people are using really have allowed for uh, project teams and organizations to stay connected uh, and, and have meetings and keep moving things forward. Um, so that bodes well in terms of um, more agile workplaces in the future. I think employees also, who many of whom were not used to working remotely, have seen some benefits there. It's nice not to have to commute every single day. Um, for some time, types of face or head down kind of focused work, uh, being at home, if you have some separate office space, is really nice because you're not being distracted or interrupted by um, your coworkers. I do think there's some fatigue around all of that. And I, you kind of asked about what we see moving forward. I think we're definitely going to see more remote work in the future than we saw in 2000. 2019. Um, but what we're really going to see is just more agile work. So people who might have been coming to the office five days a week in 2019, when we go down to 2022, 2023, and hopefully all you know, life is back to normal, they will be coming into the office three, four day, days a week. They might be working from home one day a week. They might work at a third place, be that a you know, community center, how we might word it, like a library or a coffee shop, or they might be accessing a flexible office or co-working locations some of those days as well. And so the uh, workplace ecosystem is going to become more complex and more flexible for employees and employers. And certainly that's something that before COVID, we experienced, especially amongst, say, executives and, and folks that are engaged in sales and capital raising, were on the road quite a quite a quite a lot of their time um, that most professionals pre-COVID were not 
butts in seat in their office uh, more than maybe a third of the time, generally. So that, that may not be that different. But if people are working from home, community centers, if, they are, if, if the entire population of the workforce or a much larger percentage of the workforce is working that way, do you anticipate or have you and your colleagues thought about any kind of additional logistic or management challenges around having a, an agile workforce? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that going into some of the research we did this fall and winter that I hadn't really thought through, but that started to come up is how moving to more agility and moving to more remote work is going to really require some level of management. Um, and so one way that we looked at this is we did a case study with an actual company um, and just looked at their re-entry into the office and some of the planning around that. And we started to realize that if you move to just two days remote work, but you don't manage when people are coming in, uh, you don't put any requirements about that around that, and they randomly just select when they want to be in the office and when they want to be at home, uh, all of a sudden, uh, two people who work used to work together every day may see each other six times a month. Um, and if you think of, of that from a team perspective, if you have a team of seven or 10 people, to have half your team show up, again, without some level of management over when they're coming in, if you have two days a week, it's, it's going to be closer to like three days a month that that's going to happen. So organizations are going to really have to think through how they lead people through this, how they communicate uh, sort of their policies and their desired outcomes. And then they're going to have to really manage that. Um, you know, one other way to think about this is if you move to two days remote uh, work policy and everyone decides to work from home Monday and Friday, well, you haven't changed your real estate needs because Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, everyone's still in the office. And then you're just underutilizing it on Monday uh, and Friday. So, uh, it is going to take um, some real coordination, some real change management um, if organizations want to increase uh, their remote work. Um, and the flip side, they're going to have to get used to if they're, you know, if they don't have a dedicated desk, because they're only coming in two or three days a week. Um, they're going to have to get used to sort of reserving, using technology in advance to know that there's going to be a place for them uh, when they get there. So all of that is going to require communication and education and change management. There was a wonderful part of this report or part two. I, I'm not exactly sure what the nomenclature was, but you talked about uh, office over history um, and how it has changed. And certainly it has a changed. It has changed quite a bit over the last 100, 200 years. Um, what what can we learn from that uh, that tells us what the office is becoming or about to become? Sure. So with our partners at George Washington University who helped do some of this uh, history research and research around um, some of the academic literature around the office and remote work, um, we were able to identify sort of four key purposes of the office historically. Um, and so the first one of those is management or command and control, bringing people in so that you can organize them, make sure they're doing what you want. And then, of course, you know, pre-computers, organize all your papers in one place uh, and so forth. But the second is those physical capital needs. Uh, you know, you can think back. Most people didn't have a typewriter in their house. So if you had to go in and type things, you, there was only one place to do that. That would be in the office. Certainly server rooms of the 60s and 70s would be another example of those type of capital needs um, or you know, law firms that had their own legal libraries on site uh, would be uh, another form of that. So those are the first two that have historically been more important. And over the last 10 or 20 years have become much less 
that's uh, important. And the focus has been on the third and fourth purposes. So one of those is productivity, innovation, and knowledge sharing, having those knowledge sp spillovers, both inside your organization, across departments, between people, but then also knowledge spillovers across organizations by spending time in you know, multi-tenanted buildings around amenities in the area, uh, connecting with different people in the organization uh, or outside the organization. And then the fourth one would be sort of the social or cultural connection uh, that people get. So the relationships you build, the trust that gets built between people that is helpful for uh, you know doing work together and being able to execute on projects together, the connection to your organization's vision and mission and its values. Um, and that's extremely important, uh, especially to younger workers who are really focused on what their organizations they work for believe in, what they're trying to do, and that is a real form of engagement uh, for workers and, and a motivator for them as well. And so that third and fourth piece, so we talked about productivity, innovation, knowledge sharing, social and cultural connection, those things have been growing in importance um, in, in the office space. But coming out of, out of COVID, I think they're going to be you know, the primary focus, the purpose of the office will be interpersonal. It will be about collaboration and connection um, and the relational things you can do there and how that makes people, uh, again, feel more connected to the organization. So you lower turnover, but also how that actually makes them more productive, come up with better ideas, uh, deliver better results um, than they would if they're working remotely every single day. After this, and I love this term, COVID-induced experiment that we've all gone through, given that we're trying to reach especially those last two elements, how are we likely to change the space or use of space? I can't anticipate we're going to have lots of cube farms after this. Um, what What is the office going to look like? How... I mean, some of this has been going on before COVID, but uh, what do you think as we emerge from this is, are we likely to see more often than not? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. One of the, the members of our focus groups uh, just said, I don't need to come to the office to, to write emails. And it was just a succinct way to say, exactly what we all know, that laptops and our cell phones at this point allow us to do a large amount of our individual work um, anywhere we want to, whether that's in our home, in co-working, on a bus, uh, we can do it uh, outside the office. So the office um, is very much going to be about the interaction, the collaboration. And I, I, I think that we will see more organizations try um, hoteling for the individual desk spaces or for focus rooms. I do think you'll see less space dedicated to offices and individual desks, um, especially in organizations where they find that their people do want to work remotely two days a week or, or three days a week, whatever that, that average ends up being for them. Um, some people will still definitely have dedicated desks, uh, both because they're in all the time or they want to be in all the time and uh, or, or most of the time. Uh, so there still will be uh, offices and some sort of uh, layouts, whether they're what we think of as cubicles or the open space plan. And then the rest of the space is going to continue to be focused on how do we get bring people together. So you might have cafe space, which is more for that informal connection. Um, it can still be work meetings and discussions about actual projects but in a more informal setting. Certainly learning and development. Uh, one of the things that we found in our uh, consulting research is that um, uh, over a third of employees during this induced experiment, as we talked about, um, have felt like they're not learning. Um, and again, you can do a lot of the formal learning uh, through technology and have those classes but it's that informal learning, it's that mentoring, it's looking over someone's shoulder, it's for new employees learning kind of 
between the lines, how the organization actually works. Uh, those are the things that happen when you're just sitting next to someone or you can just pop in and ask a question and talk to them. Uh, so that'll be a focal area uh, as well uh, for the office of the future. When we think about all this, in this none of that sounds to me uh, like it's any cheaper. <laughs> than, than what we did before. I mean, if, if everyone's going to have to have cafes, I think that that does change the dynamics in terms of how people think about their real estate spend. It doesn't necessarily mean more square footage. Um, I came across something. CBRE uh, reported that only 25% of their leasing staff reported at least one tenant seeking to expand space. Uh, that at least so far, and, and again, we're in the middle of a crisis, so things might be different. It's so far, people aren't looking to, gee, I want to add another 100,000 square feet to my footprint. Um, given that, given you know, kind of where things are going, as an investor in, in office buildings, what should I be most concerned about? And where are my best opportunities? So, yeah, I will echo, echo the sentiment that obviously leasing in 2020 on the whole was down. Um, renewals made a bigger portion of leasing activity as people were just trying to, you know, kick the can down a little bit till they could know more. Um, and we're still not to the point where we really know what the kind of post-pandemic world uh, looks like or even when that starts. Uh, and, the, the, you know, more of our renewals that we saw were actually um, for shorter periods of time. So people just trying to get to the other side of this before they have to make a real estate decision. Um, so I, I do think that there are going to be some challenges uh, in the sense that uh, occupiers are going to potentially need a little less space per person, especially for their individual space. Um, not they may make up some of that by increasing communal space. I think also the opportunity and the challenge is that occupiers will be looking to the landlords uh, and developers to build out uh, their buildings as well as just the neighborhoods around them to provide a lot of that connective uh, space, outdoor space, uh, green space, um, connectivity, having flexible space in and near them so they can ramp up and ramp down or bring people in who might be mostly remote workers uh, or more remote than they are in the office. Um, so I, I think there's going to be a real uh, demand for landlords to offer sort of more services um, to, to their tenants. Um, I think the opportunity, though, is, is, is really to differentiate because um, as we talk to organizations, they're really, if they're going to um, bring people in less frequently, uh, they're going to double down on the quality of that space. They're going to double down on the location of that space. So there should be a lot of demand for differentiated space both because of you know new builds or qu high quality uh, assets um, or buildings that have figured out how to retrofit and really offer a lot of amenities and services uh, to their occupiers and to the employees in the building. I wonder, too, how this potentially impacts geography um, and density in different areas. Uh, some research that Madison International Realty did, I, I found kind of interesting. The core gateway markets they saw as the, the markets that are going to be most impacted uh, by work from home. Uh, and you think about who works in those places. Absolutely. They, they, they tend to be knowledge workers. They tend to be people that, that all have laptops already. And then the least impacted cities are some of those in the Sunbelt, uh, Las Vegas, San Diego, Phoenix, Orlando, that perhaps have uh, a lot more tourism and hospitality, a lot more uh, kinds of jobs that don't translate easily to uh, online experience. How do you see kind of 
movement and maybe even within those gateway cities uh because lots of people have experienced for the first time commutes that are about 30 seconds long and and moving back to a two-hour commute suddenly doesn't seem as attractive as it once did um how do you see the geography perhaps being impacted by this yeah so i think in the short term uh markets like new york or san francisco that are heavily dependent on transportation are going to be slower for people to return to the office um, because of the health concerns of getting to and from the office. What's interesting is in our report, we looked at um, the work from home historical data here in the U.S. Um, and between 2005 and 2019, uh, work from home grew a lot more in a lot of those Sunbelt uh, markets. So Austin, Atlanta, Charlotte, Tampa are all in the the top five or six uh, markets, uh, while it uh, was actually less prevalent in gateway markets like Boston um, and New York. Um, and some of that might be cultural. Um, some of that is, um, you know, j just historically how uh, organizations have operated uh, in those markets. So I think there, um, you know, <clears throat> there are reasons to believe uh, that work from home would really benefit more densely populated markets. Um, I think that it will, uh, you know, obviously shorten commutes, which is one part of that, uh, which is a huge benefit. Um, I think though that anyone concerned about some of those gateway markets, um, I think it's a little bit overplayed because right now, a lot of the benefits in a Manhattan or in a San Francisco um, are not present because you can't just go to the theater, you can't just go out to eat, um, and that people who have been living in those cities will return. Uh, it may be new people, but young people who have delayed renting an apartment in the city, maybe stayed uh, living with their family or they moved out to the suburbs temporarily will return um, and we'll see a lot of the vitality in those markets return uh, with that. Well, that's that's a terrific note. I mean, I think there, there's so much cause to be positive even amidst the darkness of this of this crisis. Thank you, David, for spending uh, some time with us on the podcast. I look forward to your next report, and I think I'm going to keep you on my favorites tab uh, going forward. I encourage everyone who's listening to do that as well. So thank you, David, for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.